And good morning, evening, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. This is Harrison Smith with another episode of Cinema. It's our Halloween episode. Woohoo! And uh, considering how things were last year, it's a hell of a lot scarier now. And it's all brought to you by Dark Matter TV. Dark Matter TV is a streaming platform where you can find not just current genre entertainment and horror, sci-fi, thriller, and action, but also classic content that takes you back to the great old days of late night cable and finding those cult and classic films that they just don't make anymore. Available for download on Android or Apple or visit darkmattertv.com. It's free, it's fun, and it's gonna grow. If you've been following me this long, you know that cinema is not about movie reviews because again, there just aren't enough of those out there on the internet. However, every once in a while, I like to look at a movie, to look at its production and its eventual release and its impact, to look at whether it suffers from any type of cynicism or how it avoided cynicism and thus cinema. And the film that I thought would be perfect, last year I chose Halloween 3, which got a royal screwing at the box office by its distributor. And we talked at length about the hatred that has been heaped upon Halloween 3 Season of the Witch. Uh, and it doesn't deserve it because it was totally mishandled and misrepresented and had nothing to do and was never intended to have anything to do with the original Halloween series that came before it, both Halloween and Halloween 2, 1981. So this year I thought I would look at Salem's Lot. It's time to see vampires cycle back a little bit. And the reason why I thought I would look at Salem's Lot is because it was an interesting comparison in talking about uh, Stanley Kubrick's The Shining and then Salem's Lot, two Stephen King massive bestsellers, two of King's earliest and best books uh, that were both adapted for movie screen release almost at the same time and both with very, very different results. If you've listened to my previous episode about The Shining, and looking at its production, The Shining, I feel, does classify in some aspects as cinema, C-Y-N-E-M-A. However, I don't think the 1979 Salem's Lot by Toby Hooper does qualify as cinema. And it's not because I just happen to enjoy it, but I look at it from a production aspect. And that is Salem's Lot, was created under very, very tight restrictions and really set up for failure. And I say that because for those of you who don't remember, Salem's Lot in 1979 was originally adapted as a CBS miniseries. Now, how the hell are you going to take a gruesome and absolutely terrifying novel like Salem's Lot and turn it into a primetime miniseries on network television? This will precede, I believe by a year, CBS's debacle of trying to air The Exorcist on network television. It's kind of like, why would you do this? And we saw a similar effect of this with the original adaptation of Stephen King's It as a TV miniseries. But looking at the construction of Salem's Lot and its eventual adaptation to a CBS miniseries, Everything was in place for this to just be terrible and a total dumpster fire. And yet it is not. I will even go as far to say that it might just be one of the most fun vampire movies out there next to What We Do in the Shadows or Fright Night. There's a great line 
in the miniseries of Salem's Lot in 1979 Salem's Lot where David Soul uh, jumps out of this Jeep, tries to yell at a sheriff who is getting ready to flee town with his family. And he yells this line and folks, it is terrific. He yells, Barlow, he's a vampire. He must be destroyed. And I'm telling you, just listen to how he says it. You can find it online. Go watch the movie again. It's just delivered with such over-the-top conviction, and I love it. Hoob jumps out of the Jeep and just yells that, Barlow, he's a vampire. He must be destroyed. And that's what you're going to use to try to convince a sheriff of a small New England town to join your side? Toby Hooper's 1979 Salem's Lot totally avoids the cynicism and the negativity of the 2004 Rob Lowe and Donald Sutherland remake. And I'm going to explain why. When you have vampires, especially scary vampires, why is there a need for sexual predator fathers and teachers? Aren't the vampires enough? It's no different than in my Amityville piece called Amityville Horrible in that episode. You have ghosts. Why do those films always have to devolve into someone chasing people with an axe? Aren't the ghosts scary enough? The sex stuff, the sexual predator stuff, that was not the subject of the book. None of the Amityville films, which I, as said before, might take exception with Amityville 3D, because in those films, you have all these ghosts. Why does the house have to explode? Or again, someone has to chase someone with an axe. Or even have incest as a major subplot. Why? Aren't the ghosts scary enough? At least the original 1979 B-movie gave us a puking nun, which I referenced before in the Amityville Horror, and a wonderful ham-fisted performance by Rod Steiger in that film. Why was illicit sex the centerpiece of the 2004 film, the remake of Salem's Lot? Is it sex that makes things dirty behind closed doors? A heroic doctor from King's novel is now a weak sex hound banging an old friend and married mother of an abused baby? Why is Larry Crockett molesting his daughter? Why has Matthew Burke been reduced to a gay deviant stereotype? In the book, Burke's intentions are noble. He is truly worried about Mike Ryerson, whom he brings to his home. In the 2004 remake, he has sexual designs on him. Why? Why the unnecessary scene of violence to a child with Ralphie Glick's drowning? Aren't vampires scary enough? Now, Salem's Lot 1979 was created as a CBS miniseries at a time when such television events were reserved for romances like the Thornbirds, the Winds of War, or spanning dramas like Roots or Holocaust. CBS took a risk in devoting two nights to a horror theme, but Stephen King was on his way to being the greatest horror writer since ever, and the suits at the eye thought it was worth the risk. King's novel, which is one of my favorite books of all time, is one of the finest examinations of the death of small-town America, with the exception, possibly, of Peter Straub's ghost story, the novel. The novel deftly handles a wide list of characters and weaves their stories into coherent and interesting plot lines. Both Salem's Lot and Ghost Story are shining examples to new writers on how to handle large numbers of characters. 
Salem's Lot, the movie, is a quirky and mild adaptation of the book, yet it works. And you know what? The vampires in CBS's miniseries are really vampires. This was a time before Abercrombie, nair-chested, sparkly vampires and werewolves hijacked the genre and turned horror into a wuss fest with vampires that are basically nothing more than underwear models. Is Salem's Lot 1979 straight-up horror? Well, there are some genuine, creepy, and solid moments. Director Toby Hooper of the original Texas Chainsaw fame, as you may remember, efficiently pilots that film through the rough seas of network television. Until paid cable came along, network TV was not a good place for original horror films. As I've said before, CBS is the same network that made the stupid move to broadcast The Exorcist during primetime. There was no point in showing The Exorcist on free TV. Once that film was stripped of its vulgarity and demonic nightmarish context, it's just a neuter drama. The programming director who came up with that idea to air The Exorcist should have been fired. So when CBS announced it was adapting Stephen King's best-selling vampire novel into a two-night miniseries, there were groans and low expectations. Look, I was in seventh grade and I did not have high hopes and I had read the novel. Salem's Lot, 1979, is not a great horror film, but it is one fun horror film and a hell of a ride. King has a warm spot for it, and he has an admiration for Paul Monish's streamlined script, which I do as well. The script handles the numerous characters of Jerusalem's Lot, and for those of you who don't know, that is the full name of Salem's Lot. It is Jerusalem's Lot. They just shortened it to Salem's Lot. The local residents use that as its nickname. And Monish's script weaves all those characters into a coherent and constantly advancing plotline. It really is a terrifically tight script. Now the problem is that the 1979 film strips the book of its important religious and even sexual context. Wait a minute, Harrison, you just got done bashing the remake for its sexual content. No, just listen and hear me out. Network TV is not the place for such things, and these elements like religion and and the sexual stuff were sterilized and whitewashed. In the book, one of the best subplots of, of King's novel was the story of the sullied father Callahan. He was a weak priest who lost his faith and his soul to the head vampire Barlow. In the televised version, Callahan is reduced to basically a one-scene cameo and, and really nothing more. The 2004 remake decides to transform Callahan into a bad guy for some reason. It's lazy writing in the 2004 remake, and the filmmakers should have known better. It was a cynical move for the remake to do this. What works about Salem's Lot 1979 is its gung-ho cast. Holy hell, do we have a sweet menu of TV and film greats all together for this vampire bash. And David Soul, yep, Starsky and Hutch, and the singer of that one-hit wonder, Don't Give Up On Us Baby, and if you don't know it, go YouTube it. Soul headlines with blonde feathered hair and really takes the role of writer Ben Mears seriously. This guy means business and he burns into every scene, I'm telling you. James Mason was an acting treasure, but I still feel he was miscast as the day-walking assistant Straker. While the novel made Straker out to be this hulking man with a cue ball shaved head and murder behind his eyes, CBS turned him into a preening, simpering gentleman suspected less of cavorting with vampires than being part of a homosexual couple.
Of course, no one outright says this because there are audiences that could be offended and censors to appease. But amazing though, it's perfectly okay to watch vampires slaughter victims, but don't say homosexual in the same feature. Three's company was doing the heavy lifting on that one over at ABC. What we do got are vampires, and lots of them. Some of the effects are quite good and haunting. The reliable character actor Jeffrey Lewis has a good cemetery scene where he feels compelled to unearth the body of Danny Glick, only to find Danny awaiting his arrival with his eyes open. I'll never forget that scene as a kid when he ripped open that coffin lid and that Glick kid already had his eyes open and they were glowing yellow, just staring right up. Jeffrey Lewis does a haunting turn as a vampire against the solid Van Helsing type of Lou Ayers' Matthew Burke. Lewis's look at me, teacher, is still a showstopper, man. It is great. One of the most talked about scenes in Salem's Lot is Ralphie Glick uh, floating through the window when both he and his brother, Danny, uh, float to the windows and they scratch on the windows and then they float through that bedroom. Now, as a director, you could have just done this easily and cheaply But Hooper makes such a haunting vision and he did it through this really cool reverse trick photography and fastened the kid on a crane arm instead of wires. That allowed the kid to come directly in through the window. Wires would have had the frame of the window blocking it and you couldn't have done it. So the kid comes floating in. He was fastened from his back to this crane arm that moved him directly into the camera through the window. And it's one of the most iconic and haunting scenes in a vampire movie or a horror movie ever put to screen. The effect still gives a better jolt than anything CGI can muster up today, I'm telling you. Those of you who have seen the film, you know. But the real conundrum in translating Hooper's version from King's book is Barlow, the lead vampire. Now, the 2004 remake, and they still didn't get that right, was much more faithful to Barlow's portrayal in the book. You see, in King's novel, Court Barlow is a refined gentleman, an eloquent talker, and a master strategist, a chess player. In the 1979 TV miniseries, Barlow is reduced to a squealing, grunting Max Schreck from Nosferatu, a Count Orlock kind of vampire. He was played by Reggie Nalder. The CBS Barlow is bluish with these buck tooth incisor fangs and blazing yellow eyes. But here's the thing, man. It works. Like they took away all of Barlow's dialogue and all of his really interesting strategizing against what he felt were modern day Van Helsings. But it's okay. Because what Hooper did was give us like this really nasty, scary, visceral vampire. And to show you what I mean, the very first scene where Barlow appears in a jail cell scared the shit out of me as a kid. And you know what? Still makes me jump today. It's one of the best jump scares I've ever seen. And you'll see what I mean because it's so quiet. There was no music setting it up. A guy is sitting in a jail cell You see a hand wave in front of the jail cell door and the jail cell door opens and then suddenly (laughs) the shit scares you. And I still remember jumping in my seat watching that scene. By going so far to the other extreme, 
The CBS miniseries made Barlow into a true monster, and it doesn't mess around with trying to give him dialogue. James Mason takes up the chores of the dialogue and speaks for his master and provides the cool elegance that came through in the book. Barlow's first appearance in the town jail, like I said, is downright startling. And I'm telling you right now, Barlow's death at the hands of David Soul at the end of the movie is one of the best vampire stakings ever committed to film. I swear by it. That scene is both perfectly acted, edited, sound designed, and the music for killing Barlow is terrific. And I don't care if you're sitting there going, spoilers, look folks, the film is almost 40 some years old. You don't have to worry about spoilers. And most of all, you really think the vampires aren't going to get killed? If you haven't seen Salem's Lot by now and you think you're a horror fan, then shame on you. What really makes Salem's Lot 1979 work is the casting. The ensemble cast is what makes this delicious cheese. The late Fred Willard, Ed Flanders, Bonnie Bedelia work alongside George Zazunda, Jeffrey Lewis, Lou Ayers, Julie Cobb, and A number one character actor Kenneth McKillen. You'll remember him from 1984's Dune as Baron Harkonnen. But he played the sheriff that I started this podcast out with saying, Barlow, he's a vampire. He must be destroyed. Now add in some superb no-name actors and the teen heartthrob now turned religious guy Lance Kerwin, fresh off of James at 16 at that time, and you got yourself a tidy horror flick that pushed the boundaries of network television. This is not a classic or the best vampire film, but hot damn is Salem's lot of hoot. Such wonderful scenery chewing by James Mason tempers David Soul's burning desire to go full William Shatner and overact in a frenzy. You can see Soul trying with everything he has to keep it together. He just wants to shout and scream and flip out and tell everyone the vampires are coming. The vampires are coming. And you see what he can do in the morgue scene as he blesses a homemade cross as dead Mrs. Glick slowly reanimates on the table before him. They shot most of the film in Oregon, and the Marston house is an obvious mock-up. It's, it's a stage house. It's, it's obviously not a real home, and that robs it of some of its true eeriness, but that's okay. We got James Mason schooling a local cop Italian in the meaning of the word chow. We got Fred Willard in silk-hot red boxers putting a double-barrel shotgun in his mouth while on his knees begging for his life. There's David Soule staring heavily at everyone while his eyes scream, Son of a bitch, what I gotta say is important. And we have Barlow, a Vulcan ear-tip blue meanie who screws up everything for this little town. It's a shame to miss some of the other characters from the book, including that wonderful school bus scene. But all is forgiven with 1979 Salem's Lot. Lance Kerwin has a great moment when he looks at his dead parents on their kitchen floor, slain by the evil Barlow who had just exploded through a window and grabbed his parents and smashed their heads into each other. And Kerwin stood up and you can hear the tremble in his voice and he just shakes his finger at Barlow and he says, I'm going to kill you. And we believe him. Floating, hissing vampires, holy water flying all over, stakes and hearts, David's soul. This is what a vampire movie should be. And despite its flaws and its limitations by network television, I'd rather sit in hell forced to watch this back-to-back for eternity than spend just two hours in any one of the Twilight films.
Fangs for the memories, Salem's Lot. And all of you, happy Halloween. Head on over to Apple Podcasts and give a rating and review. Cinema is also available on YouTube, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, and Google Play Music and more. Check out my cinema blog on horrorfuel.net and download Dark Matter TV for your Apple or Android devices.